Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We've got a lot to get through in this episode of the podcast. Last week we promised that we'd come back to the technically speaking stuff that we did a little while ago. A few of you were good enough to write in and say that you enjoyed that last technically speaking episode. I think probably most people enjoyed listening to two idiots try to understand quite complex things, but we'll give it another go. Um, We're going to be talking about different suspension arrangements, but Andrew, before we get stuck into that, there's a car that we have to cover off in some detail. Um, You've been driving it. It's one of, for me, certainly, one of the most intriguing and exciting performance cars in a very, very long time. Um, So can you get us started, please, on the Toyota GR Yaris? Yeah, what an interesting car. Um, it's, It's the kind of car, I guess, that I thought people wouldn't make anymore. Because it's so left field. And I always thought, and, you know, we've talked about this before, and you've written about it before uh, on DN, that you know the, the, the days of the true maverick car have gone because they cost so much to develop and you never sell enough of them. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the truth is, with the GR Yaris, I mean, as we both know, um, that car was conceived for a completely different reason. It was genuinely going to be a homologation special. I mean, Toyota wanted to do their 2021 uh, Yaris rally car in a radically different way. So um, they had to homologate a whole new car. And then halfway through this year, they went, nah, not going to do that. Um, but they had this car. Um, I think, I think, well, I'm right in saying, Dan, that they canned it because the rally car that is, the 2021 WRC car, because of covid and money and because of the new race coming in 2022 it just wasn't worth going down that road is that that correct yeah that's correct fundamentally the car was uh conceived as a homologation special because they wanted to homologate that three-door shell the the much lower roof line 95 mil lower than a normal yaris um certain lots of other things as well i'm sure yeah. So, you know, like the best homologation specials, even though there, <laughs> there was no car for it ultimately to homologate, um, it's just it's just full of trick stuff. Um, it's like it sort of goes back to, I guess, to the sort of, you know, the old E30 M3s and that sort of thing, which look superficially like other E30 3 Series BMWs, but were in fact completely different. I mean, this from a distance looks kind of Yaris-ish, but it's, I mean, somebody wrote what it's got in common with... Uh, Yaris you can normal Yaris you can buy in a showroom and it's things like you know the front headlights and the windscreen wipers and like nothing else there isn't a single body panel that it has in common the platform is different too I mean it's it's on a kind of hybrid platform which has got nothing to do with um, electric drive systems but the front end of the car and the back end of the car are actually developed from different cars so the front end I think is a mainly Yaris derived platform and the back owes more to the Corolla and the CHR so it's uh, it is a uh, and I use this word advisedly, unique thing. It's not like anything else that's out there. Um, and really, it's only Yaris in its badge and kind of the way that it looks. Uh, because, you know, the moment, you know, even before you get below the surface, I mean, it's got things like, 
you know, um, a carbon roof and an alley bonnet and doors and real rear tailgate. Uh, and then you delve down within it. Uh, and it's got this unique uh, three-cylinder, 1.6-litre, whatever it is, 257-horsepower engine, the most powerful three-cylinder engine in the world. And its own in-house developed four-wheel drive system. Uh, if you get the circuit pack, you get... You know, not just the usual sort of, um, you know, stiffen springs, dampers and roll bars, but you get front and rear torsion differentials too. I mean, this car is as trick as you like. Um, and we all sort of saw this, didn't we, when the car was announced and the spec came out and just thought, and we were all just thinking there, thinking just one thing, please let it be as good to drive as it appears to be on paper. Um and I have, and it is, and I just couldn't be happier about it. Um, and I, actually, I know a few people who've got orders in, and I'm just, I'm just as jealous as hell because um, it's just, it's just a fabulous car, and and it's fabulous for reasons. Okay, of course it's ridiculously quick, and it's got huge amounts of grip and everything else. But actually, what I like about it, because I'm a 55 year old bloke, um, is that it's actually perfectly usable. What they haven't done is turned it into a, you know, a racetrack refugee, something which you know is unbelievably stiff and unyielding and fairly horrible to drive unless you're driving it as fast as you can possibly drive it it's a perfectly nice normal natural car to go about your day-to-day business in um and then you get on a decent road and it's just off um and that engine is so eager it's got a six-speed manual gearbox i mean who'd have thought that we'd be celebrating that but it does and it's fantastic um it's 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 actually it's a really it's actually it's a really tough car to pick holes in i mean you can uh, I have a particular problem that, you know, if you go and drive it around a racetrack, which I have, in fact, a very wet, wet very bumpy Castle Coombe, um, it's just not quite as playful as I'd like it to be. I think it's it's so caught up in the business of going of being really fast and really impressive. It's just it's it's just forgotten a little bit of fun insofar as. I mean, you can probably remember um, the way that Evo Mitsubishi's, you could back them into a corner on a trailing throttle and you'd be as sideways as you like. And you all—you knew that all you had to do to get out of it was hit the accelerator as hard as you can and the four-wheel drive would just snap it straight and you could just be a complete idiot. And that was, you know, a large chunk of why we love those cars because they were so um, agile and balletic in the way they did things. And I would prefer a little bit more of that from the Yaris, but Hey, you know, I'm not here to carp about it. It's just, it's just a wonderful thing. And if anybody thinks that 33,000 pounds is a lot of money to spend on a Yaris, all I can say is go and drive one and you won't think that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I've not driven one. I'm, I drive one, um, next week, this week as the podcast goes out and I'm just can't wait. Um, so that's really interesting. You, you want just a bit more playfulness from it on circuit. So presumably you toyed about with the, the different drive modes, which is effectively just uh, to control the four-wheel drive system. Um, and just to run through it, normal mode is um, a 40-60 front-to-rear torque split. And then you've got sport mode, which is 30-70 front-to-rear. So really heavily rear-biased. And then um, is it track or whatever it's called is... Uh, 50 uh, 50 so it's called race, isn't race. It? 50 okay. 50. so that's yeah. that's so that's yeah. for ultimate performance isn't it yeah yeah so, so, so forget that you want you, you just want to put it in sport yeah um and and it does do more in sport um but still for me not quite enough interesting um yeah so yeah i mean it is really good and you know and, and, and i'm slightly mindful of the fact that you know we are lucky enough aren't we to drive these cars in um in conditions uh, and on tracks that you know to be honest most owners won't do a lot of the time uh, i would think i was you know I, I, also when i drove it at castle coombe it happened to be extremely wet uh, and i thought if it was ever going to go and do the big sort of yeehaw sideways thing it would do it in those conditions um but it didn't and i was there um i'm not you know i, I was there with autocar and we had all their testers there and, and you know and we all absolutely loved it but um you know we all did think the same thing about it um but um still a great great car you know and 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 actually you know because i'm so old i've driven all those you know old ones not just subarus and you know mitsubishis but you know going back to escort cosworths and integrales and sunny gtirs and that sort of thing and you know this in 2020 is as good as any of those ever were um you know, people always go on about the Integrale, and I think I said before that I've always thought it a slightly overrated car. Um, for my money, this is 
a, this is a much better car than the Integrale. I mean, a better car today than the Integrale was then, and put the two side by side and give me a decent road or a racetrack, and I'd, drive, I'd still, I would just go straight and get in the door of the of the Toyota. It, re, it really is that good. So we're not, what we're not doing is going, okay, well, this car is cool, given the limitations of 2020, and and, and we know how much less fun that we'll, we think we have these days than in the past. By any standards at all, it's absolutely cracking. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So talk us, uh, talk to us about how the car feels on the road. I'm thinking proper bumpy British B road undulations, lumps and bumps all over the place. Is it? It's, it's not yeah, super I stiff, mean, is it? It's not super stiff, and you know, and, and I don't think this is a sort of car that spent you know all its development life you know pounding around the Nurburgring. I think this was a car which was probably set up on a rally stage, you know, and you have to build um, compliance into it. And you know, I drove it. Um, well, I've driven it. I've driven it lots of roads. I've driven it, um, well, main, mainly across Exmoor on some very, very challenging roads. Again, in um, you know a range of different conditions, um, and it is. It, it does that lovely thing. It kind of breathes with the road, um, and it makes you feel slightly worried. It makes. It does make you feel in the way that homologation specials have in the past. It does make you feel a bit superhuman, uh, and because it's got those brilliantly compact dimensions. Uh, because it's got so much traction, it basically has unlimited traction. Um, because you know, 257 horsepower and a similar amount of torque to 66 pound feet, I think, from memory. Uh, maybe wrong there. Um, you know, we're not talking huge numbers, but because it's quite light, I mean, it weighs less than 1300 kilos, which in 2020 is quite light. Um, and because it doesn't have an awful lot to transmit, it's got so much traction, and because it's so compact. And the way the four-wheel drive system works is so clever. And if you get the circuit pack, you also get those brilliant Michelin Pilot 4S tyres. Um, it just it just feels, you know, it, I mean, you could embarrass, I mean, you could embarrass cars costing 10 times as much on a decent British B road um, in that because the dimensions really make a difference. Um, you really don't have to slow down for very much. Uh, and while they may be... St- struggling around um you know scrabbling trying to find a bit of traction a bit of grit here that you're just gone you know you can you you can use i mean it's all about i mean if you drove a i don't know um you know a p1 or a laferrari or something like that i mean you know we've talked about this before you, you know you only kind of get to use 30 40 percent of what it can do on a public road um but with the yaris you're using you know 85, 90% of what it can do um, without being, you know, completely antisocial um, and, and and you're having a ball doing it. So, you know, it's, yeah, not much not to like there. Um, a few people read the review on DN. You gave it a 9 out of 10. I think some were expecting a 10. Um, so so why not the full the full 10 out of 10 from you? Um, two reasons, really, I guess. Um, one is the, you know, the game changer rule. Um I don't think it is a game changer. Probably the closest thing to a game changer we've had since the A110 came out. Um, but I think we've seen enough cars do that sort of thing um, well enough for it not quite to um, justify that. I also, at the same time, I drove a Civic Type R, the sort of the the, the new very light one, um, and I actually thought the Civic was um, even more engaging had better feel and that sort of thing but really the reason is is just this the fact it's it, I, I knocked one off just because um it's not quite as fun at the precise moment when you'd expect it to be its most fun um and to me it wasn't actually a difficult decision i wasn't there i didn't know i wasn't agonizing over over it at all to me it was a, it was a very clear obvious nine it's not one of those things it's not like it was a nine and a half if we did that it's uh, to me it's you know and for us yeah, that's great isn't it? it's really you good know, nine is really we, we don't give out many nines um and you know you've got to be good i mean nine is best in its class um and yeah I, I, you know i put it and the civic absolutely side by side um okay so a couple of things i want to ask you the, the cabin and the seating position talk me through those briefly cabin is um, you know i don't know what people expect it's you know it's it's not what that car's about is it um the seating position is a bit perched it is a bit high um I, it didn't particularly trouble me i think it did trouble some other people and it's strange because I, I i usually like sitting well i always like sitting very low in cars i like feeling that i'm in a car rather than on it 
Um, but maybe because it was entertaining me so much in so many other ways, maybe I didn't uh, dwell on that too much. And the cabin itself, it's got, you know, it's got everything you need. Yeah, I think it's even got cruise control and it's got, you know, climate control and yeah, nav and everything else. And none of it's particularly attractive, but it all works well enough. Um, and in a car like that, you know, you just need, it's like, um, you know, your A110, which we'll talk about later on. Um, it's got enough of what you need in there. It doesn't have to be all bells and all whistles and all look absolutely gorgeous. It's just got to be there, and it is. Mm. Okay, and finally, how ridiculous does it make the Mini GP3 look? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I just I haven't thought about that until now. I mean... Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't even. I mean, they cannot be compared. You know, unless you know somebody said, unless you know somebody came to you and showed me and said to me, show me precisely the right and the wrong way of doing that kind of car, um, and then you could have them in the same sentence. Otherwise, no. Nah, sorry, there's absolutely. Yeah, one is a poses paradise and the other is a proper driving machine um and and, and that's as that's as far as you, you that's as much as you need to know I, I suppose the thing that really resonates with me about the the gi yaris is is toyota's approach with it and the the lengths it went to in its execution um it's on a pretty much a bespoke platform it's it's it's, it's got its own shell it's just unheard of really um and <clears throat> what i find interesting about that is that you compare the approach toyota took with this car to the approach it took with the new Supra, which was developed in partnership with BMW. Um, and I, I, we might feel slightly differently about this, but certainly we, we, have to, we must agree that Toyota came in for a huge amount of criticism for what some people felt was a half-hearted approach with the Supra. I think, I think what I found difficult about the Supra, um, you know, I don't blame it for the fact that if you tested it against its closest rivals which would be a cayman and an a110 it would come third uh which it would i have no doubt um because the cayman and the a110 are two of the most formidable cars that any other car could expect to come up against um what i find difficult with the supra is when i went to drove it to launch um you know the engineers told me and i'm sure they were sincere that you know okay fine you know, they, it does set share basic same underpinnings with a BMW Z4, but that the two engineering teams had nothing whatever to do with each other. They literally didn't know what the others were up to. And yet, the you know, but if you're going to go that way and you know that BMW is going to go down a sort of touring GT route, why didn't they make the Supra more sporting than it is? And I hope it's because there is a sort of GRGR Supra coming. Um, but my, that's my problem with it is that given the opportunity to, you know, although you, you know, we all know cars can use, you know, the same underpinnings to dramatically different ends, um, why they didn't do something different with it and make it a proper sports car. It feels, and always did feel to me like a pulled punch, uh, which is the last thing in the world I'd say about the Yaris. Okay, that's great. Um, fine. Well, that's the GI Yaris, and I'm just gagging to have a go in one now. Uh, can we come back next week and I, 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 I will shut up and you can you know, we'll, we'll just do five minutes on it and you can tell me what you think uh, unless uh, unless you can go with me because I, I mean because you are you know massively into your rally cars and this is actually much more your kind of car than mine um, and I think I, 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 and I think it would be good to, to get your views on it too um, so actually one last comment before we move on um, somebody left a comment on Drive Nation saying for the money, would you rather have an Alpine A110 and a GR Yaris? So that would come to about 80k, a bit more maybe. Um, or would you have a Bogo 911, a Carrera? Um, which I thought was a really interesting question. And I put it to our followers um, and in our stories on Instagram. And 2,700 people responded. Um, and the outcome was that 59% of people would have the GR Yaris and the A110. Well, I mean, that's that's fantastic, isn't it? And, and I completely understand it. I mean, to me, I'm going to be really boring about this. I'm going to say you're not comparing apples with apples. I mean, a 911 is a wonderful everyday car and a GR Yaris and the A110 are both, you know, the the, the, the amount of overlap um, between a GR Yaris uh, and an A110 uh, is, is considerable. Um, so whereas a, whereas a 992 is doing something, to me, distinctly different um gun to head 
yeah, I'd have the the, the, the Yaris and the A110, but I, I don't think anybody's sitting there wondering whether to buy a 992 or a Yaris and the A110. That's a, such a boring <laughs> answer, isn't it? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think I think if nothing else, it demonstrates that Deanna's are, you know, as into the subject matter as anyone, aren't they? And they're not they're not starry eyed about a flashy 911 necessarily. No, no, absolutely not. No, no, because because the thing about Deanna's is quite often I mean, a lot of them, you know, do are faced with these decisions and they do spend their own money on these sorts of cars um, and they know their stuff great okay well let's move on we're going to talk about different suspension arrangements and like we did with the the last technically speaking episode you'll all be well aware that andrew andrew and me are not engineers so we're not trying to describe from an engineering point of view how these different suspension arrangement works but more what the advantages are what the drawbacks are and, and crucially what you feel from behind the wheel um, so this, the sort of default sort of baseline suspension arrangement is a McPherson strut. Um, yeah, certainly at the front. So that's, it's a, effectively it's a lower arm. It might be a wishbone or it might be two separate links and they'll meet, um, the, the wheel carrier, the hub, um, basically at the wheel and they'll meet the, the spring and damper, which is the strut. And that goes straight up into the wheel arch. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of triangulated, isn't it? And it's, it's very simple. It's very strong. It's easy to package. Um, it's actually very good in a crash because there are fewer components, essentially. Um, and all that stuff's great. But the big drawback is that w- when you turn into a corner, the car goes round the bend and the body leans. Because of the way... I am going to use the word kinematics here, but I'm, I'm not going to dig into it any deeper than that. Um, because of the way the kinematics work with that type of suspension arrangement, effectively, the outside wheel, let's say it's the front tyre, the front wheel, the outside tyre will lean over into positive camber. Um, and the tyre is therefore not in square contact with the road, so it, it can no longer produce the strong and consistent grip um, that, it, that it would otherwise be able to. It was this type, the McPherson strut, it refers to Earl S. McPherson, who invented it as a Chevrolet car engineer back in the, uh, I think, 50s, perhaps before then, actually. Um, but so, as you've said, Andrew, it is the, the sort of go-to suspension arrangement, particularly on the front axle. You, you, you have missed off its most important attribute. Go on. It's cheap. I think I said cheap. I'm going, Did you say I'm, cheap? I'm going to back myself on that. I, well, I meant to. It's in my notes. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm, I... Okay, I might have been, uh, I don't know, having a sip of tea at the time. That's, I mean, that's, let's not be shy about this. That's why I can't manufacture it, it. Okay, cheap and easy to package. You know, whatever else you'll say, and you'll have manufacturers going on about the wonders of the McPherson Strata, the reason they use it is it's cheap and easy to package. Um, and packaging is so important these days, um, and as is cost of manufacturer. And, and frankly, for most people, most of the time in most cars, um, the fact that um, it may be kinematically less than um, entirely optimal is of no consequence whatever to them um and you know it's a, it's a really really good all-purpose system isn't it which is why so many cars use them um yeah so i'm i'm, I'm actually i'm a big i'm a, i think for, i think it, it, it just it just makes sense the only time i get annoyed with this it's like when people talk about you know um torsion beam rear axles which i'm sure we'll come on to i only get annoyed when people start to say oh yes you know these things are actually they're fantastic we can get exactly the right dynamic response out of this that we want and you just know it's cobblers that you know that it's there because it's cheap and easy to package end of yeah and the thing is for most applications a mcpherson strata is absolutely fine isn't it absolutely um so the the big drawback as i said was that camber change that you get when cornering um, and the way that you prevent that happening is you fit not a McPherson strut, but double wishbones or a multi-link setup. Because you, 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 the big advantage of that is that you keep control of the camber change or that there's very little camber change as the body leans in a corner. And that means that the tyre is always pressed squarely into the road where it can generate its strongest and most consistent grip. Um, it also... that. These more sophisticated arrangements also allow engineers to tune in a better ride because they can, particularly with a multi-link setup, they can better decouple ride from handling. Exactly correct. Um, it's all about, particularly at the rear, um, it's all about um, you know, locating the wheels and, and, and controlling the way that they move because tyres and wheels don't just move up and down, they move fore and aft um, as well. 
uh, and the more points that you have, the more points of control you have, the frankly, the more finely you can tune um, your suspension. So that's why that's why they do it. Um, as you say, it's you know, it is a way of um, getting a uh, an axle to behave itself um, in terms of uh, rigidity and in terms of location, but at the same time, not completely torpedoing um, the ride quality too. Mm. It, the drawbacks are cost, complexity, packaging. Um, <clears throat> they take a lot more tuning work as well. Yeah, and weight. Yeah, that's another. Uh, the, 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 that's another potential. I mean, depending what system you're comparing it to, um, and as we know, that unsprung mass is, uh, is is the least ideal form of mass. But the advantages um, are are considerable. Um, and and yeah, you know, and this is why you know, and we find this um, particularly in the sort of family hatchback sector. That's why you know you have to be really careful if you go and buy a Ford Focus or a Volkswagen Golf or a Mercedes A Class and probably some others uh, as well. These days, you know, there was a time when all those cars would have just have had you know proper multi-link rear axles, um, but they don't anymore. Um, some of them have got multi-link rear axles and some of them just have very simple cheap um torsion beam rear axles um and these manufacturers are are very often not too um keen about coming forward and saying which ones have which system um and you may be listening to this thinking well how can it possibly matter in fact knowing you lot you probably know exactly why it matters but all i could say is just go and drive it if you can or if you ever have a Golf with a proper multi-link rear end, which basically means, um, you know, any uh, Mark Five or Six, I think, um, Golf and some of the Mark Sevens, and then just drive, go and drive one with a torsion beam, which would be cheap Sevens and um, and and Eights, and the difference is night and day, uh, and it's the same with the Mercedes A Class, uh, and it's the same with the Ford Focus. Uh, the difference between having you know, and, and you can feel it in really strange bits, like, you know, you, you can feel it in, in, in steering response. You know, you wouldn't have thought that necessarily that, you know, the configuration of the rear axle is going to affect the way the car steer. It does, absolutely. Um, and actually, I mean, this is a case in point. Um, we needed about three years ago a new sort of family hack. Um, and, you know, as ever, we thought about everything and ended up thinking, right, well, we need a Golf. Um, and I got literally the cheapest Golf you could buy, which is a 1.5 SE Nav, um, which had a multi-link rear end. And that to me was the, it was it, without any, I mean, I would not have bought a Golf with a beam axle at the back. Um, and if you go and drive this Golf that we've got here now with this multi-link rear, I mean, the ride for a little hatchback, I mean, it's just... And it's not just that it's really comfortable; it's really quiet too. It feels it feels very, very sophisticated. Um, you know, it feels Mercedes Benz like in the way that it rides. And it's a you know, and it's a it's a you know, it's a three year old Volkswagen Golf. So yeah, it really, really, really makes a difference. And you think that difference could be appreciated by anyone? Yeah, exactly. We're not talking. The, yeah, the most you enthusiastic may drivers are we? We're talking most yeah. people. So, so my I've got uh, my sister-in-law who who has no interest in cars, whatever. Um, she's a or she was at the time a district nurse, and so she was driving around all over the place. Uh, and she had a Ford Focus, which they gave her to drive around, in, and she absolutely loved it. And then one day they said, uh, "Well, that's done as many miles as you can do in it, so here's your next car." And it was an Astra, um, and she didn't like that as much. And it wasn't that, you know, one was, you know, had a better equipment level or other. And, and I, I can remember talking to her and she just said, I just don't like the way that it drives as much. And I spoke to her about this, that, the other, and it wasn't the engine or, you know, or the gearbox or anything else. And really what she was describing was the difference between a multi-link and a torsion beam rear axle, although she had absolutely no idea that was it. Um, it does make a difference. And, you know, you, anybody with literally no interest in cars, if you put them in two Golfs or two A-classes or two Focuses, one with a beam and one with a multi-link, they would be able to detect it at once. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, it's that old Mark One Focus syndrome, isn't it? It's <clears throat> people, most buyers had no clue why they liked the car, but they would describe it... They would say something like, it, it's smooth to drive, or I'm ju- I just feel more confident in it, or something. And it's because it had that sophisticated rear end on it. That absolutely game-changing rear end on it. And, yeah, and look at um, 
things like the Civic, well, you know, the Civic, um, which had, you know, used to have, you know, the Civic hatchback used to have you know, <laughs> unequal length wishbones at all four corners, <laughs> which was crazy. Um, and then in the, what was it, the previous but one generation, they, they, they just thought they could stick a torsion beam rear end on it uh, and get away with it. And the only way that they could get the Type R to handle at all was to basically give it no ride quality whatsoever. And we all started jumping up and down. And surprise, surprise, they stuck a multi-link rear end back on it again. And you know, now it's the best kind of car of its kind in the class. And this is not a coincidence. So why is the beam, a beam rear axle such a disadvantage? Well, because it's basically, it's a non-independent system. Um, you know, the, the great thing about independent suspension is that, you know, on any given axle, you know, one wheel is not affected by what the other one does. Um, and on a beam axle, uh, which is literally it's a beam that twists across the axle, um, you know, of, of course, one wheel is is directly and dramatically affected by the actions of the other. So you cannot isolate each impact um, event. Uh, and so you get a deterioration in ride quality, or at least that's the way that my totally uneducated engineering brain um, has, has always looked at it. But, you know, to put it in most simple terms, um, you know, cars with beam axles, regardless of what they tell you, um, just don't ride as well as cars with proper multi-link rear suspension. Uh, and also, because they're so simple, um, you've got very limited um, tuning opportunities. Uh, Voxel actually did, did a clever thing. They stuck a thing called the Watts Linkage in there. Um, which help them separate out um, the loads and uh, between ride and handling, and they and, and that's why Astra's got an awful lot better. Um, but it's still not the same. It's still not the same. Um, and cars that there aren't many cars in that class, you know, particularly in, in the sort of hatchback class, that persist with uh, torsion beam rear axles because they tend to be the more expensive, the more expensive end of the range. Um, you know, focus. You know, whether it's a Focus ST or a Golf GTI. Um, or an A250A class, well, I mean, they all obviously have the multi-link rear end. I think the exception, though, is the Megane. I think that still has a beam at the back, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. They've they've tended to persist with the beam, haven't they, at Renault Sport? Yeah, and... they have. And and, and 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 to be fair, you know, they've they've always got them to handle. Um, and I think that if if anybody has done the beam better than anybody else, I would say it's definitely Renault. Um, but you know, there is obviously um, a price to be paid in ride quality. You can't have both with a beam. So those are the the most commonly used um, suspension arrangements these days and for the last few decades, really. But Andrew, are there any sort of weird um, weird systems from uh, many many years ago that you want to quickly run us through? Well, uh, for, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there, were, there were all sorts. I mean, the, the systems that they used years and years and years ago were you know were were, were very primitive. They just had axles supported by leaf springs and leaf springs were the same that that were the same that they used on you know wagons in the in the 19th century um and and they were very very sorry and corvettes and corvettes yes oh god they still use them do they still use a transverse link transverse leaf I don't. I, do you know? I'm not sure about the mid-engine one, but certainly beforehand with the the last. Yeah, the they had trans- and, and to be fair, they they, they actually worked really well, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, but. Yeah. Um, now, the interesting one was the De Dion tube, which is actually still used by Caterhams to this day. Apart from which Caterham doesn't use a De Dion tube. In fact, there are two. Oh, you're going to have to tell me. Okay, so there was um, there was the ones which had the Suzuki, um, but they've stopped making them now, haven't they? So the 160, but also the CSR. The Caterham CSR had a fully independent, in fact, still does, because they still make them, fully independent rear end. But I diverge. So the De Dion tube was a way of um not having to carry the enormous mass of your rear axle um so you would have a fixed diff um and drive shafts coming out of it and then the suspension loads were taken by this de Dion tube that ran across the back of the car um and it actually made a big difference it started becoming i think de Dion was a bloke who was around in fact he made his own cars de Dion's in the early 20th century but they became increasingly popular, increasingly used in racing in the 1950s. Um, and then companies like, I'm just trying to think, so cars like Alphas in the 70s and 80s used them a lot. And I don't know anybody else uses them these days other than Caterham. But it was kind of like a halfway house between a proper live axle, um, which would, you know, which you probably have leaf springs or whatever, and a properly independent system. So, um, yeah, it, it's not as good as one, but not as bad as the other, if you like. 
Um, so that's, I guess, the one that I would um, choose to um, talk about most. Very good. Okay. Um, right. Well, I, I want to start talking about the Alpine A110 a little bit. The, the car generally. Well, why is that then? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about the car generally, and then um, a little bit about my own car, just because I've had it now for a year, just over a year actually. Um, and I think it might be quite interesting to have a quick natter about that. But before we move on to my car specifically, I want to talk, keep it in the area of suspension arrangements and talk about the double wishbones on the Alpine and why they're so fundamental to the way that car drives. Um, actually, I think they're as fundamental to, um, to the way the Alpine drives as its aluminium body and platform. You know, it's, it's lightweight dimension, it's lightweight uh, build and it's it's very compact dimensions um and to, to give it some context the cayman has got mcpherson struts up front um so it's in that way the, the alpine is a more sophisticated car um and the, the whole the point about it is that fundamentally because that the a110 has got double wishbone suspension and, v- and very supple uh, springs as well um the grip is in the the a110's chassis the grip is not in the tires um, and so you, you compare that to other cars that have less sophisticated suspension, but very wide and very sticky tires. All their grip is it's it's sort of dumb mechanical grip from a big fat tire. But if you can yeah. if you can give a car because that because that, that's what you have to do, isn't it? Um, you have to you know that's the way. If you, if you have a compromised chassis, either through its suspension or through the uh, rigidity of the actual platform. Um, the only way you can provide grip, unless you're going to do it aerodynamically, um, is by just just by piling more and more rubber onto the road. Yeah, exactly. So what Alpine's engineers have done with the A110 by giving that very supple suspension, making it very light, and having keeping control of the camber change in cornering because of the double wishbones, what they're doing is getting a tremendous amount of grip out of a relatively narrow tire and tires that do not have an aggressive tread pattern or compound okay and that means that well a the wheels and tires are lighter so it's that virtuous cycle again isn't it of keeping weight down and also the tires they're not compromised in the wet they actually work superbly in the wet um i remember being up in north wales around this time last year when it was hammering it down i was in my car and the bloke behind in a lamborghini aventador svj roadster couldn't couldn't keep up um, of course, it was a it was a perfect demonstration because that car had such wide aggressive tyres on it, it just couldn't cope with the standing water, and the little Alpine just sort of skips through it. Um, it was fantastic. The the other advantage. Yeah, and, go on. Well, I was, I, I, you're probably about to. I'm, I'm just interrupting. I'm probably going to say what you're about to say, but you know, obviously, the more rubber you put on the road, particularly at the front end, um, the worse your steering is going to be. Um, you know, you only get, you know really lovely steering feel i mean if you wanted to have a car with perfect steering feel what you would do um is give it a really stiff platform you then put proper wishbone suspension on it um you keep the car very light um and then you would have as little tire up front as you thought that you could get away with um you know the only way to do better than that is to either have it you know hydraulic or 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 unassisted steering which is not practical these days Uh, and that's exactly what you know alpine have done they've they've approached it from an entirely sort of purist direction haven't they absolutely um and what you are what you have got is a car with naturally natural inherent grip rather than grip that has been sort of accessorized into it after the fact because you know it, it, it doesn't have any of its own yeah um, yeah grip in the chassis rather than the tire um and uh, yeah you're right about the steering and the a110 does steer really well even though it's got actually quite a crude electrically assisted rack um it still it still steers really well but the, the other advantage of having um relatively narrow not super sticky tires is that the the breakaway in the dry is very progressive. It's not a sudden loss of grip that causes a mo- you know really frightening moment, and it also means that you it, the car's limits on the road are much more accessible. Um, so you can feel like you're dancing up to and around the limit of what the car can do without taking tremendous liberties, um, and that's fundamentally why the A110 is fun to drive on the road. There you go. So tell me, one year on, so. I mean, I think the A110, it's one of those cars. Um, I wonder if one of the reasons they haven't sold that many in the UK is there are an awful lot of people who read all the stuff that you and I and lots of others read about at the time and just thought, that sounds like a lovely idea. 
But you know what? In reality, I'll just go get a Cayman. Um, because, you know, it, and, and I'm not just talking about the sort of snob value of the Porsche badge, but it's also because, you know, if you get a Cayman, you just know uh, it's always going to work. It's not going to go wrong. It's never going to, you know, get on your nerves. It's just going to do that really dull everyday stuff that those cars do so well. So the question, Dan, is a year in, um, how has, you know, how has the reality matched the hype? Um, it's... I mean, it has. That's the simple answer. It has matched the hype, and it's. Uh, I've loved having it. Um, it's the car's so clever for me because it it's brilliant fun to drive. You know, I, I jump out of supercars into my car and have maybe more fun, um, just because you can use its performance and grip on the road. But I have. It's a lightweight sports car. It's small. It's compact. Um, but I've never ever winced at the prospect of a long drive in it or an early start in it or any of that stuff. You know, I, I suspect, you know, Lotuses are great, but I suspect an Elise in the middle of winter, jump into it, uh, airport dash, uh, if it's chucking it down, you know, I think it might just get on your nerves a little bit. Um, and other cars like it, you know, stiff ride, uncomfortable seats, very noisy on the motorway. That stuff would begin to, certainly me, it would wear me down. The A110 just has never done that. I just find it so easy to use daily, apart from the fact that there's just not much storage space. Um, yeah, I was, I was going to ask that. There's no storage space in the cabin. Not really. Um, no. And the and, and the boot is absolutely tiny, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it's got two. Yeah, but and I mean, they're but both tiny. Total, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, okay, okay. I mean, obviously, you've probably not been able to because of lockdown and everything else. But you know, do you think you and your other half could have gone on holiday in it on a driving tour of Europe? Uh, as someone might want to at, or it would just be completely impractical at a stretch you know you'd be shoving stuff behind the seats probably passenger footwell um but if, if you're canny about how you pack and i've got two of the the sort of flight cases that fit perfectly underneath the front um bonnet Ooh, it, dan do you have tailored luggage i do <laughs> i do <laughs> they are the branded alpine get you <laughs> um but so that that makes the most of the space that you do have and then you know you can get a couple of sizable soft bags in the back so yeah you could do you'd be packing light we, we've done weekends away without any trouble um but more than that might be a bit of a stretch uh but you know i just i just adore driving the thing so you were you were asking about wouldn't you just go and you know lots of people think it's a great a wonderful idea but they just have a cayman as well uh, sorry but they just choose to have a cayman instead and that does resonate because this is the first brand new car I've ever bought, the first sort of valuable car I've ever owned. Um, and I'm, I'm into, the, into driving and into the subject matter enough to not be sort of uh, distracted by this stuff. But it occurred to me that I went to, I got the train up to Alpine Manchester to collect my car and to get to the Alpine section of the dealership, I was brushing past, you know, a Renault Colios and a, a Clio or something. If I'd been buying my first ever Cayman, I'd be walking into this swanky dealership. I'd be brushing past, you know, a, a brand new Panamera and 911s and fancy SUVs. And I'd be getting, you know, VIP treatment from the dealer staff and all this stuff. And I, I totally understand why some people will feel seduced by that. But you're being devil's advocate here because none of that would have mattered a damn to you, would you? You'd only be thinking, I'm going to drive home in an A110. Exactly. I didn't care, but I, I can... You could, it, 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 it could, it, you, you could have walked through a scrapyard and you wouldn't have cared less, would you? I would not have cared. Not, not, not no. one bit. What I will say is, um, when I bought my car, there were only six dealerships in the UK. I think that's probably still the case. Um, and so we're, I'm doing this now because the, the, the car has been in for a service. It's first service after 12 months. Um, and my closest dealership is Solihull in Birmingham. Um, Blimey. So they haven't got one in Bristol? No, there's, no, there's not, no, none in Bristol, nor any closer. Um, and so, you know, that's a factor, isn't it? In terms of the overall ownership experience, I had to drive up to, uh, to Solihull. It's a two-hour drive, probably. Um, and they, they, were, they were very good. Great service, by the way, from Solihull. And they were very kind. They let me take their demonstrator home. Um, so that's a four-hour round trip. And then a few days later, um, another four-hour round trip to go and collect it again. Yikes. And could, could, they couldn't have done it. Um, they couldn't have sort of just given you a room in an office uh, where you could have just sat for two or three hours and then just driven your car 
home because it can't it can't even you know it's it's not complicated is it it's all mcgann running gear it shouldn't take that long to service well there were a few things i wanted them to have a look at so they actually had the car for a few days has it gone wrong well there were uh rattles from the door cards okay so and they knew what the fix was so it's just a couple of rubber rubber grommets um there was the rear glass hatch has got uh, a rubber seal glued onto it and that glue can fail because I guess because yeah. of the heat of the engine, so they uh, and, and that's a, that's a, a whole day to to reglue that. Um, uh, okay. So there were a couple of bits and pieces like that that they had to spend a bit of time, um, you know, putting right. But uh, but they did it, and the car doesn't rattle anymore. And it's a, apart from very very minor things. Sometimes the infotainment system takes longer than I'd like for it to recognise my phone. Um, the D- as you know, the DAB reception can be pretty poor. Um, so apart from those minor things, nothing sizable has gone wrong. That's really good because I, I, you may not remember this, I had a prototype, well, a very early sort of pre-production car uh, here for a little bit, um, left hooker on French plates. Um, and that, what did that do? That's right. It would flatten its battery um, and lower its windows, which <laughs> it once did overnight when it was raining. Um, and it did it. And they went back and they thought they'd fixed it, but it hadn't, and then it happened again. Um, but 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 you but you've had nothing like that. No, nothing like that. No. Um, um, and can I can I can I ask you a, a, a sort of slightly grubby question about money? Um, because I, I, do, do do they depreciate much, or are there so few of them around? Are they so, so highly regarded that you're basically driving around in a free car? Um, it's not free car. No, I think um, the early cars, so from what 2018, are fetching about 40k now. Um, probably a bit that's more, still pretty good isn't it? it i think it is and probably a bit more in a private sale and that's the you know that's the first two well 18 months say that, that's the really steep part of the depreciation curve isn't it yeah um so i suspect the first year 18 months they'll take a bit of a hit and then the, the begin to level out and only lose value quite slowly he says you know that's what i hope anyway but then people aren't taking baths on them that's that's for sure no no um and and we hear don't we that you know despite the fact that the car has not exactly been a runaway bestseller um although i believe in certain countries it's done better than it's done over here which is strange because we love sports cars but anyway uh, i think I, I hear that you know that renault appeared to be four square behind the brand and despite you know our fears that they were going to can it and everything else it's gonna you know they're still going to proceed with it and you know and turn it into a you know not just a one car but a proper you know a proper manufacturer yeah it does look that way and we know the f1 team is switching from renault to alpine next year which is really just they're changing the color of some bodywork aren't they and some some clothing but it's it's yeah, an but, indication but they wouldn't be doing they wouldn't yeah exactly they wouldn't be doing it if they were if they were going to chuck it in the bin yeah and i think longer term the renault group group renault probably see alpine as its way of making electric cars more desirable that's fundamentally it isn't it yeah good luck with that Mind you, there is the BMW iX which has just come out, and that's about as desirable an electric car as I've ever seen. <laughs> go on. Let, let, let's just uh, go down that oh, alley. No, do we have to? Okay, let's not. Do we have to? <laughs> let's no, not. I mean, okay, all, all I would say is, you know, uh, I, I, I saw someone, someone wrote that it was the replacement for the i8. How it's the replacement for the i8, I cannot see, because one is an absolutely stunning 2 plus 2 hybrid, and this other is this abysmally ugly massive suv uh, i suppose because both of them have some form of electric power they were able to make the connection but uh i just i just you know um two things one is i just don't understand why bmw is doing this uh, and secondly I, I i also really don't appreciate the attitude where if people call them out on it they get these sort of slightly we know better than you you need to embrace the new you stuck in the mud old you know, insert expletive here, um, and I, I, I don't like that. I'm, I'm not that keen on that insinuation. And uh, you know, uh, have you met anybody who uh, who, who really likes it? I, I mean, there are one or two people who there was a, somebody wrote a blog on Autocar saying that they thought it was, you know, pointing out other cars in the past which have been very controversial when they came out. Um, yeah, cars like the Alpha S said. Yeah, we all love the Alpha S said, but I don't think any of us likes it today because of the way that it looks in spite of the way that it looks perhaps or maybe it looks it got to the stage now where if they're so familiar you kind of aren't that bothered by them anymore but um i think it's going to be a while before i feel like that about the ix uh, yeah um it's it's bmw's attitude 
towards being challenged um, on its design direction that's grating, isn't it? And the the designers are absolutely defiant. Maybe they have to be, but they'll say stuff like, yeah, well, it's inevitable that bold design will be divisive. It'll always be 50-50. And it's not 50-50. But it's not 50-50. <laughs> it's it's, it's 95-5, isn't it? And it's not bold design. It's just terrible design. Um. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I mean, because I'm not a designer, and because I'm frankly far more interested in the way that cars drive than how, how they look, I look at these in in very sort of um, simple binary terms. It's just ugly. It's just an ugly car. I don't particularly know why it's ugly, but you know, I don't particularly know why my television works. I don't need to. I just you know, I just know that it does, and it's just. Oh. I mean, it's just a, it's just a shame, and it doesn't need to be like that. And you know, things like the I don't know the Audi e-tron and the electric Mercedes SUV. I mean, they're perfectly respectable looking cars. It doesn't need to be like that. So I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, um, I, let, let, let's not get sidetracked by that. I'll be amazed. If I don't BMW... even know why I mentioned, mentioned it now. <laughs> no, no, nor do I. Uh, I, I. I'll be amazed if BMW doesn't, you know, backtrack at some point and just take a slightly more conventional route because. I mean, okay. All, all I would say uh, is, I mean, you were, were you around for the Bangal era? Yeah, um, I, I remember. I, I do remember, and I we all thought the five series that the E60 looked terrible, didn't we, to begin with? Yeah, actually, I think the E60 looks pretty cool. It does, yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe BMW it does have a point. I suspect that's why BMW thinks it has a point because it looks back at all those cars which were, you know, were very controversial and um, and are now. A completely accepted, and B actually, some people, myself included, probably think look quite cool. Um, I I think that if they've gone down that road, they've gone too far down that road, um, and I, and, I, and I just hope that they that they pull back and uh, and, and have a think and 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 just do this, you know, because BMW made some great looking cars, really, really great looking cars, um, but the iX ain't among them. Um, right, let me just get back on topic for a couple of minutes. Sorry. <laughs> I want to... So there's just one, one more thing that I want to talk about um, on my A110. Um, so from quite early on, I had this nagging suspicion that my car felt a bit different to the very early... Um, oh, you've said this before as well. Yeah, yes. the very early premium edition cars. Uh, sorry, premier edition cars. Um, and in terms of the ride quality, mine felt a little busier, not quite as sort of freakishly lissom and fluid as the earlier cars that I drove um, and one or two other people have been in the car and said the same so I, I, sort of, I, I decided to get stuck into it a little bit uh, and one of the things I did was take it to Litchfield Ian Litchfield had a he's got an A110 and he's been fiddling about with his and he's put totally different um, suspension on his his is an early uh, premier edition car um, and so he, it's a very early one and so I just I got him to fit his springs onto my car, um, and it made no difference. Made no difference. Not as far as I could tell. No. Um, Gosh. My to be clear, my car still rides beautifully for that sort of machine. Um, it's just it doesn't quite have that ultra you know fluid feel that um, I know yeah. that, that I remember from the early cars. But it, the, the trade off is that when you're really hammering along a tricky road, um, rather than sort of getting a little bit out of phase with itself as those early cars that I drove could do. It's just a bit more controlled. Um, so I'm, I'm not even convinced it's worse. It's just quite different. And the I had I got David Pook to sit in it, and he's he's the guy who's got an A110. He's doing all this Life 110 stuff. He is a, a, a sort of ride and handling engineer. And he, he just thinks that maybe my car has upper tolerance dampers um, because, you know, dampers cannot always be manufactured exactly the same there'll be tolerance no. and mine just might or maybe it. or or maybe you know from those very early cars and don't forget that you know all those early cars that uh, you and i drove were um well, a they were press cars um which i'm sure doesn't make any difference at all um but they were probably certainly the early cars i drove were all pre-production and we all know that specifications change I mean, manufacturers they don't just wait until facelift time to make changes to the cars you got manufacturers making changes to cars all the time and i would say probably with a car like an a110 which is a completely new car um you know i'm sure they're still learning stuff about it so i wouldn't be surprised if they hadn't had you know and also the other thing is is that you know um 
supplier contracts change um, and maybe they had a contract with a, a manufacturer to do the launch cars and then um, there was another OEM who supplied the dampers. I, I, I have no idea. I'm speculating wildly. I've, I, I've genuinely no idea at all. But, you know, it, it, I, I suspect it is in the damping and I suspect um, there has been, for one reason or another, a change in damper specification and the only way you would ever find out is to find a car on an original dampers and, and retrofit them, which clearly isn't going to happen. Well, I might talk to Litchfield and see if he'll put his dampers on my car. I suspect he will. Um, so I'll give it a go. But, you know, you, I, you might well be right, but I know the, the engineers at Alpine reasonably well, um, well enough to just send them a, a DM on Twitter or something or an email. And I trust them. And, and they all say there hasn't been a spec change. But who knows? Oh, okay. There could be a, a supplier change. It might well be that those early cars that we drove a couple of years ago, they just had absolutely spot-on dampers fitted to them. And, you know, Alpine w- were very careful to make sure that they did have those. And mine are just upper tolerance. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so that's my car. Um, 7,200 miles in, just over 12 months. And it's fantastic. Everyone should well, have you're one. using it, aren't you? Which is, which is, which is great. Yeah, I mean, given that all the other cars you've got to drive in the interim, I think the fact you've done over 7,000 miles in yours is good. Yeah, it, I, I'm absolutely delighted with it, I have to say. Anyway, let's leave that there. Let's leave that episode there as well. Um, we, we will be back to talk to you again next week, uh, but I just have to remind you all, please, to review the podcast, um, give it a rating as well, but a generous rating. We don't want any three stars or anything like that um and remember as well to check out patreon.com forward slash drive nation because you can bung us a few quid a month uh, and that really really helps um but andrew i suspect you're not going to tell us the outcome now i think we ended last week's podcast by talking about this two cv race that you're oh yeah we've done it <laughs> go on can you tell us any more without giving anything away i don't think i can say anything other than uh well mm, uh, <laughs> what can i say it was it was great fun um there we, we, we do definitely have a winner <laughs> um one of us will be drinking a, a, a an unfeasible amount of ale as a result um fairly shortly um i'll tell you what is good um I, I, what i can tell you about it is uh neil carey uh who you know um and who shoots basically you know shoots almost everything for chris harris which isn't top gear um, and he's a fantastic bloke. He came down and he shot it. And, you know, we had cameras in the cars. We had drone in the air. We had his big camera filming the whole thing. And as a result, what started off being basically just Christopher and me cocking about with our silly old cars. I mean, I've just, I've seen some of the sort of rushes of it. And it, it just <laughs> looks really professional. It looks beautiful. Yeah, we'll um, do it. So Neil's I, shooting it. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and, yeah, first of all, huge thanks to him because, you know, I don't suppose anybody's bunging him anything to do it. Um, um, but also, I, I, I think, you know, completely on top of, you know, Chris and I being stupid in our old cars, I think it's going to be quite a nice thing to look at, which is absolutely the last thing in the world I expected. So, um, if it hasn't come out by this time next week, and obviously, you know, Neil has to find time in his busy schedule to put it all together and everything else. So, uh, I will, uh, I, I will on DN uh, and on other social and that sort of thing. I'll let everybody know where it can be found uh, when it's out uh, as soon as I know myself, which I don't at the moment. But it was good fun. I think it will be worth watching. And please, uh, if you can, lob a uh, a bit of money to Mission Motorsport, um, which is the charity we're doing it for, which is the reason that we're doing it. Uh, that would be. Um, really really appreciated and uh the just giving page is in my instagram if you go into the frankel andrew instagram thing it'll find it in my bio um so there you go plug over yeah and we'll leave a link um in the description of this episode so you can just tap through that way um okay all right well thank you everyone for listening and we'll talk to you again next week speak to you next week bye the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel 
The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.